Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. Today is Friday, August 4th, 2023. And as always, we are, I'm your host, Tim Hayes. Uh, I got distracted there. Friday, August 4th, 2023. I'm the host for the first hour, and we're grateful to everybody who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. On the website at whyagain.org, if you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. That book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work, That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet, and it's a tool I've been using with great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we'll help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, We would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. 
and press the one on your phone. It'll put the icon of hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. We appreciate people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The other option is you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And um, we had our support group last night. It was a Thursday, and those support groups are free on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can find out how to join us there at mindshiftersacademy.org. And last night we listened to some more vintage Guy Finley and um, and had some discussion about how these tools apply directly in our lives. Um, so we're wide open today for comments and questions. I don't have anything specific planned that uh, follows up on our shows so far this week. Um, I just had another session with somebody who's struggling with the belief that they are poison and damaged and repulsive, etc. And it's amazing to me how common that is. Um, it's amazing to me how powerful that dynamic can be in people's lives and have them not even be aware of it. So if you're somebody who feels like you're not attractive or you're not valuable or you're not lovable, uh, I strongly encourage you to tap into the use of these tools and either do reality management worksheet, individual worksheets on it, or the targeted journaling that Michael Rice calls the mind shifter tool, and dig into and start to release the false beliefs that you must be holding on to in order to believe that you are not valuable or attractive or worthwhile or lovable. And our experience in life and as therapists has been that if a, if a grown adult has that in their system, it's because they were raised by people who had that in their system. And we learn what we live with, and then when we grow up and move out of the house, we live out what we've learned. And if we're raised by people who are not comfortable in their own skin and or who feel like they are unlovable or damaged or broken, that is what we learn, whether we like it or not, regardless of how diligently our parents would have wished for or hoped that our lives and our upbringing would be different than theirs, there's specific work required to break that cross-generational pattern. And the, the tools that Dr. Michael Rice offers are one of the best ways I know to start engaging a process that will undo that type of cross-generational pattern. So if you've got any questions or comments about that, we have plenty of time to talk at 
3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. I am... I've also recently become aware of the EE Systems Energy, which is, I'm told, based on the same kind of work that Tesla was doing, finding an energy frequency that will feed energy to the cells and an energy that keeps increasing the millivolts energy in your cell so that your cell has the energy to detoxify and and get rid of toxins and traumatic energies, etc. And you can find that if you just search for EE Systems. E, capital E, capital E, space systems. And I'm back at Easter of this year, back in the spring, I drove all the way down seven or eight hours to uh, I think it was Lexington, Kentucky to experience that and now there are three of those energy centers within a half an hour drive of, of where I'm living so uh, that may be good news for some people that these EE systems even though they're quite expensive to uh, purchase and install, they are not very expensive to go spend a couple of hours in at um, 35 or 40 or $50 an hour for people who can afford it. It's, um, it's a way, it's like Michael Rice talks about the Avison and the Beamer. It's a, kind of a way to increase your vitality so that you've got more of what you need in terms of functioning energy to process out traumas and toxins. And to my way of thinking about it, holding on to a belief that I'm ugly or decrepit or repulsive is holding on to trauma, toxic energy. And it may take you know, more than just worksheets for me to have the vitality to process out those false beliefs and the energies that I've downloaded and held on to for all of these years. If it's been decades that I'm holding on to that belief, I might have been accumulating quite a bit of toxic energy around that negative belief. So, um, so as I said, we have plenty of time for comments and questions, answers or testimonials. It's been quite the full week. I think the overview of the week was that I presented six or seven worksheets on Monday and a mind shifter targeted journaling results on Tuesday and discussion on Wednesday or did it was that a day that somebody called in and did a worksheet and then um, yes and then yesterday was discussion with Susan so it's been a very full week lots of stuff that's been
talked about that's available for us to step into and discuss. And excuse me, the yawn. So if no one's raising a hand and no one has anything uh, specific to offer, I will read the answer to a question from a walk in the physical. We have area code 541 here in the air. Good morning, Dr. Tim. This is Celinda. Welcome. Welcome to you as well. I really appreciate yesterday's show. I think that is an ultra-uber archive right there, that show yesterday. It okay, so what part whole... of it what part of it was uh put it in that category for you? Uh it was the whole show. The question that Susan asked, your responses to her question, her responses to your responses and Doug's sharing. I just um it opened up a whole whole new perspective. It was like a giant shift in my mental kaleidoscope in relation to my life. Um, There were so many areas where I, yeah, well, there were so many areas I resonated with Susan. Um, When you were sharing with her about how she never, her mom's responses and, uh, and also how she didn't have any models at all, to help her out other than the sort of backhanded way of her daddy telling her he loved her. Um, I realized that all of my life I have been searching for to go to my father's house all of my life, and that's it's become like a homeward-bound search. And when I was listening to Sh- Susan's story, I realized, that what I had was a real blessing, even though I couldn't see it at that time. Um, My mother was very much like Susan's mother. And because of the um, situation I grew up with in that alcoholic family, which my mother was part of, um, she wasn't an alcoholic, but she was... Uh, an addict in many other ways, gambling, other things. Um, And my father's side was totally different. I can see why they didn't survive, Uh, the the marriage didn't survive. And uh, he was from a religious background, very kind, loving family. Um, The... um, I'm trying to gather my thoughts here. Uh, the fact that I had a grandmother on my father's side of the family, his mother, who was a total nurturer and literally saved my emotional life um, and helped me survive, I was I lived with him possibly a total of about two years because my mother went through many marriages and uh, for every time she would get divorced, she would send me to my father. 
and I feel really blessed that she did so. My grandmother was a total nurturer. Um, I remember spooning with her in bed before Grandpa went to bed. Um, She tucked me in at night, read me stories every night, cuddled me. Uh, I just felt totally nurtured. Whereas my mother, bless her heart, I... um, I understand now from what Doug shared that she probably had um, some horrific experiences in her life that I can't even imagine. She did watch her brothers getting beaten by her dad, and uh, she had a mother who, my grandmother, whom I adored also, but she was the, the intellectual one, the teacher. Both my grandfather and my mother were teachers. Um, he also was a superintendent in the stories I got back from family members on the Hartwick side about the way he treated kids and stuff when he was at school was also uh, um, something I couldn't comprehend. But my grandmother, in order to su- survive, would just shut up. And also she was a shunner. And so uh, I could imagine how horrible that experience was for my mom. I also suspect, because of a couple of things that were said by a friend to me um, who was, is a therapist or was a therapist, that uh, there might have been sexual um, abuse in the family and possibly my mother. I don't know about any of that. And... Um, so this was the scenario. For all of my life, I have been lamenting the fact that I couldn't live with my father rather than seeing the actuality for myself that I was blessed and that I, I was able to be with my father's side of the family, which at least emotionally kept me alive, because one of the things that I have discovered through my own self-reflection is that my mother was both neglected me and abused me. And when you shared about the World War II um, reports from orphanages there, uh, I remember my father saying when I was one that I was the quietest baby he had ever seen. Um, he and mom divorced when I was around one, and he came to visit. <clears throat> and I didn't make a peep. I just didn't say anything. And so I, when I realized all of that, I just wanted to thank you for that show Thank Susan for her question and her responses, and thank Doug for his sharing. And one thing she said when you asked her why wouldn't she have um, given a hug or whatever it was to that gentleman who was so attractive when, um, if she'd been Taylor Swift, would she have had that problem or something? I don't remember exactly how it was said. And she said, well, I, I was just, I'd gross him out or something like that. And I realized that if that situation had happened to me, it would have, my response wouldn't have been grossed out. My response would have been, I have to walk on eggs here because that person might attack me or harm me in some way and uh, or come on sexually towards me when I'm not interested. And so that 
enriched the whole experience for me also because how uniquely different each one of us responds to life. And now I can be grateful. <laughs> and just just opening up this whole bucket of gratitude. I'm glad you're doing that. I I and hope it continues to be fruitful for you. And experiential. That's the other aspect that I almost forgot to mention, Dr. Tim. Just like Susan, <clears throat> I have felt all along that I there was something that didn't work for me at this time, maybe later it will, at this time with the Mind Shifters worksheet. So all of my life I've been thrust from the time I was teeny tiny into an adult brain, into the left brain before it was even developed. And I got downloaded into that left brain. I remember my mother saying, well, I trained Celinda to be a little adult when she was two years old or three years old or something like that. You know, I can leave her with adults and not worry about her at all because she's a little adult. And uh, sort of along that line, it was the energy more than the exact words. And so I did that very well with a great deal of stress. I have felt stress all of my life, incredible stress, as most of us probably have experienced. And um, I realize now that I never got to even develop in my emotional brain before I was thrust hard and fast into my intellectual brain. And also I uh, uh, experienced some reparenting with a very good friend of mine who was a therapist and worked up under a psychiatrist. At that time I was a military widow, so I had Champus. And I lived on Kauai, and my very good friend lived on Oahu. And I would go over once a month to visit uh, her for therapy and she was starting to reparent me and then the psychiatrist decided she wasn't going to take Champus anymore so that stopped that right off the bat. I, um, she told me one time, she said, you hide your feelings, your feelings are buried under your intellect. And she said that... Um, my emotional age, Dr. Tim, was three years old. And I was something like, I don't know, um, 36 or something like that when she said that. Uh, what brought me... So you had a little catching up to do, you think? Oh, my God. She... Um, told me that what brought me to her Dr. Tim was I um, would go once a month and I would see her at the same time because I represented a certain committee of the Episcopal Church so I'd go to Honolulu to the cathedral and what I did there um, was be on that committee and then I'd go see Sally and Sally um uh, uh, let me do my thought. Oh, she she would start the reparenting process with me, but bef- 
that one time when I was going to get on the plane, I was chronically late, and I missed it just enough to where I saw it leaving the tarmac. Now, fortunately, this was in a tiny airport, because this is very embarrassing. It was a tiny airport on Kauai, and I'm at 7 o'clock in the morning, so hardly anybody's there. I see the plane leaving on the tarmac, um, uh, and that plane, Dr. Tim, was my mother. And I'm I'm pounding on the door. Let me in, let me in, don't leave without me. And I realized, oh, my God, I need help really bad. And that's when I called Sally. Well, when her psychiatrist refused to um, have campus anymore, decided she didn't want it anymore, For and, and I understand some of the government rules are incredibly <laughs> Um, abusive to say the least but what uh, Sally did is she said tell you what if you ever need to talk to me just call me on the phone and I'll continue my work with you for free bless her heart and she did and finally at one point I'm talking to her on the phone a couple years later and she said I'm kicking you out of the nest. You are now emotionally 18. <laughs> and at that time, um, I don't know what my emotional age is now, but that was big. That was really big. So that's my story. All right. Quite the story. I hope that the uh, experience of applying these tools on top of the work you've already done um, results in you're just continually feeling more and more comfortable in your own skin. That's that's one of the the ways I talk to people about, you know, the ho- hopefully a way to measure: Am I making progress in therapy? Do I like myself? Am I comfortable in my own skin? Am I comfortable moving away from certain people before it becomes traumatically abusive? My comfortable trusting my intuition Uh, that was one of the conversations in the group last night as is not too surprising for having the experience I do with this work it's common within this support group over the last 19 years and the Thursday group's been going for I think 10 now But it's common for us to attract people who are highly creative. And a certain percentage of those people who are highly creative are also highly intuitive and or clairvoyant or have premonitions, etc. And it's also common that those people don't know that that is a skill they see it more often as a curse or part of their being weird or part of the the, uh, evidence they use to reach the conclusion that they're damaged or broken because they've never been introduced to that set of energies moving through them as though it were uh, useful and or a blessing. 
so um, if you have that, if you're one of the many people who have a sensitivity that's higher than the average in one way or another, you pr- unless you had really good parenting and p- parents who were comfortable in their own skin and helped you become comfortable with who you were, you probably use that trait or that specialness as part of your belief system, a part of the evidence that you pour into a belief system that says you're damaged or broken or unlovable. And if there's any way we can support you in applying these tools to dismantle those false beliefs, that would be something we would want to do. This is very interesting, Dr. Tim, because I remember in an alcoholic family, it's crazy-making. And I would remember things being said to me about how things were. And my eyes would say, doesn't look like that to me. Yeah, it's very crazy-making. And I think that may have been where I hung out was in my intuitive side and then when I go to my father's side it was so safe there I didn't have to worry I didn't have to wait for the other shoe to drop I didn't have to um, walk on eggs I didn't have to just withdraw and hide and so in a way what I developed I'm highly intuitive I guess Um, I trust myself well, how would I put this? I don't trust the outer information I receive. And yet what's funny, it was that was the only access I had for a really long time. Go to the outer, go to the outer. That's probably why I developed my intellectual brain so I could survive. What I realized, though, is that at some point I would fall back into what my gut told me. And... As a result of that, one, I'm highly sensitive. I mean, I can ball my eyeballs out at a ballet or a horse race. I don't go to horse races usually, but my parents did, my mother did, and my stepdad did. And just ball my eyeballs out in a parade with a John Sousa march. And at the same time, uh, it helped develop me to be contrarian. So I never knew whether it was my stuff that I was crying. I didn't never knew whether it was pain or compassion or just understanding of the pain of another because I had that very similar experience. But I became very contrarian. I remember exactly when I took probably the very first one was when I took Jesus down from the cross and made him my brother. And um, and, and uh, then that started me on a long religious track. But it also had to uh, float over into my politics. It flowed over into my do relationship. It, do, do you find it useful to be a contrarian? Yes, because I okay. do my own research. I do my own research. I've, I'm okay. coming to is the it, realization. Is, it, is there something about being a contrarian that doesn't suit you as well as you would like it to? Is that why you're bringing it up so that we can help you uh, formulate a worksheet to be less contrarian? Or 
is this just part it's of a not, story it's about? Not, it's not contrarian in a in a, a um, adversarial sort of way. It's not that. It's just that it's like I see things differently than most people do. And one of the things that's brought me to is that we all have belief systems. And all of us have at least one niche somewhere where we're a true believer, where we're in a closed system with our belief system rather than an open one, where we shut down and refuse to look at any information that doesn't agree with us. Does that make any sense? And and one thing COVID did that I think I shared with you before, and also now I'm noticing it in the political arena because I've been voting third party or dark horse since 1992. And what I've realized is that nope, now I am disengaging, disengaging from any party owning me from any person owning me. It's a process. You know, it's like you take one little one little string off at a time. And now I have another challenge in the political arena because we're so polarized here. How do I express love to another whose position might feel threatening to me? And any, would I and, and the same love? way you would to any the same way you would to anyone else. It's not dependent right. upon the context if it's actually the energy of love you're extending, you just be it and extend it. I'm I'm starting to get lost as to how you started talking about how useful the show yesterday was and it's for you an ultra highlight show and now how we're talking about your contrarianness and your politics. Can you help me reel this back into something yes. that's relevant to the yes. work we do, please? I, I, will, I will directly. It's that I had a situation come up where I offered a sharing. You know, I just simply said, have you checked out this candidate's website? And the person shut down immediately. And I said, oh, to myself, I have some more work to do. This is wonderful. This is great because this is a friend of mine. And it doesn't matter whether it's a friend of mine or whether this person is a a neutral or whether this person is someone I would necessarily avoid. It's just like, oh, good, I have an opportunity to practice opening my circle instead of closing it down. There's a little mantra I have. If you draw a a small circle and close me out, I will draw a larger circle and bring you in. And so, yeah, okay. I think it's another topic here. So let's stop with that, Um, all of the sharing about my personal life. But it's all, everything is connected to everything else, Dr. Tim, for me, everything. And I have my dark shadow side just like everyone else. Um, And I'm glad it's coming up, and I'm glad I get to explore it. Um, And, yes, the tools are very helpful. Not the worksheet so much. I usually end up in a muddle. But you did mention the uh, love exchange. Um, 
that's experiential, and also I'm suspecting uh, or I'm intuiting that the mind shifters would be another experiential tool I can use. Can you suggest any others within the no, context? No, and, and if, you're, you know, if you get into a muddle with the worksheet process, I recommend that you just simplify it to the either the five-step mental short version or you simplify it to, I don't like how I'm feeling, what is it I want, I'll cancel that. Just just that simple. If you start practicing that, as we've talked about for the last few weeks now, when I first began saying, I'll, I'll cancel my goal and I'll cancel my need to be right, my mind didn't even know what that meant. But after years of practicing, saying that and noticing how I felt and noticing whether I got tight or tense or relaxed and noticing if I had different associations, now when I say I cancel my need to be right, it initiates a process within me, a cascade of shifting of perspective and softening tensions that is very, very different than anything I knew about before I started that practice, which is at least 19 years ago. It's been 19 years since we've been doing the Tuesday night support group. And I so. love that because that's what I'm doing mentally. And if I, if it, if you were I and you were uh, had this suggested to you and you did the five uh, steps mental form like you mentioned would you be writing that form down as use it as a written worksheet so that you're writing which writing is I make it uh, available to people in both formats I make it available as the mental short version in which I'm not writing anything down I'm just memorizing these five steps anytime I don't like how I'm feeling I identify the feeling and put a feeling emotion word on it Next, I ask what thought I'm using to create that emotion. Next, I look for the goal that's contained in that thought that's not getting met. Next, I say I cancel the thought and the goal and ask to be shown the hidden part of my mind. Take a breath or two. If I have extra time, I'll recite the forgiveness pattern at that point. And the last step is I think the most loving thought, most loving memory I have from recent or distant past. I also make that available to people in a format that is slightly smaller font, a little bit more spacing, so there is a space to write what is the emotion I'm feeling, what is the thought, what is the goal, and did I get an insight at the end of step four. But it's not now, necessary. Is that, one, is that the one you get? you can download? The one that, the that I have available on the mindshiftersacademy.org is the mental short version. It does not have the spaces to write it out. But you can always just flip it over and write on the back. Okay. But it's exactly the same thing. Okay, so what I have been doing, and I am so grateful for the Aramaic Gospel these past four years, uh, what I have been doing is I say, I use the 12-step mantra of would I rather be love or would I rather be right? 
Uh, I look at my, am I demanding a certain outcome? Do I want my own way? Um, And I also do the, draw the circle in. And I also say, what's the most important thing here? For me, it is connection and relationship on whatever level that is. Uh, And that's kind of what I'm practicing. So I can add these other things. I have done mind shifters. I can do those. And um, that's, that's what's working for me at the moment. And I practice the gentle art of blessing whenever I can remember to do so, not get in my cups. And uh, I also, um, I'm practicing gratitude big time. All right. Well, I also, you know, I frequently recommend that people do the Three Early Memories of Conflict worksheet that's available on whyagain.org. And I also recommend that people do the Mind Goal Management Sheet. And um, it is um, its just part of the whole series of tools that Michael and Jeannie make available. And some people are drawn more to some than others. And I just keep encouraging people to go to the website and explore until you find something that works for you. And I certainly am, and I certainly will continue to do so, and I'm certainly eternally grateful for the show and everybody who participates. You're very welcome and deserving. Thanks for the call. I'll mute you so you can listen to the rest of the show in the second hour, if that's your desire. So we've got about 18 minutes left, 563-999-3581. Area code 520, you're in the air. Good morning. This is Audrey from Tucson. Welcome. How can we support you today? Yes, I was listening today to the previous uh, person, I forgot her name, but it was, um, it stimulated something within me, and I thought to myself, I am so grateful uh, for, well, I'm grateful to God, to source energy, for the creation of all. And I was thinking about my experience as a child, some of which I would be locked in the closet what seemed to be a long time with a skeleton key. I was with with a coat hanger. Um, I was tied in the basement with ropes around me. This is the first time I ever stayed. Let me just interrupt you and, and suggest that rather than list all of the horrible things that happened, because that's plenty already, if you have an active negative emotion going in this moment or a recurring negative thought about it, it would be very productive to frame out some worksheets that you could do and figure out 
how you can actually release some of the energies that you undoubtedly downloaded through those interactions. Well, that's that's my point. I thought to myself, maybe I am totally off the mark today because I thought to myself, look at all these abusive situations how very grateful I am, how very grateful I am to experience. It might sound silly to some people, but look at what I have gained. I have gained many, many tools, various tools. I have the ability to persevere because that's one of my strong points, perseverance. And I thought to myself when I was little, I thought, why me? Then I asked myself, why not? Why not me? Audrey, if it wasn't you, who would would you want it to be? And I can't come... I can't come up with an answer. All in all, I have work to do, and I have the tools, and I have gained so much. And, I mean, I'm going to be 82 in September. I mean, if I could do this at my age and have the courage to come and speak on the radio for people to hear this because you see now if somebody's talking about their experience no I don't know exactly their I know my experience and within their experience and my experience is a collective understanding within myself and within themselves, and we could work together. And I never, ever thought I would be at a point of saying, I am grateful for all. Yes, I have downloaded erroneous beliefs, but yes, I have many, many tools. Most of all, I have the intention. I have the intention to work at it. And since I have been implementing each tool throughout my life at the level of my understanding of where I was at, I have reached a point where I can say, I am so grateful for mercy and grace and for all that is. I mean, it just sounds, and thank you also for your talk and your words about intuition, Uh, because I've had experiences where I thought I was a witch where I had knowing, and I'm grateful for that, too. So although this might uh, 
found uh, different. It's the same. I'm working on my obstacles. And I am grateful. And thank you for the radio program, the support groups, for the tools, and especially to, to the genie, because I'm not that good on the computer. And she answers my questions. And I'm learning about that, too. And thank you to Michael. I mean, I just can't understand me that I finally can say, you mom, thank you, dad, and I'm doing my work. Thank you all. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad it's useful. I'm glad you're finding it uh, supportive in your process. And um, if there's a way we can help you with any of those specific events that happen, then put them on worksheets and map it out. I'd be happy to support you in doing that. Thank you. I'm sure I'm sure I will be doing the worksheets. All right. Many blessings. Thanks for the call. Blessings. Blessings. Thank you. So our call-in number is 563-999-3581. So far it's been Testimonial Friday. Uh, if there's been a, a a way in which something about the shows so far this week have impacted you uh, in a positive way or a not so positive way, let us know. Five six three nine 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 three five eight one and press one. I am not at the level that Audrey was discussing at this stage of the game she was saying that she's reached a point where she is grateful for everything that's happened in her life and I remember talking about listening to Dr. Michael Rice many years ago do a talk where he said think about some of the worst of the worst things that have happened in your life and then pick one that's five years or more in the past and then raise your hand if you can see how that thing as tragic as horrible as negative as intense as you thought it was at the time raise your hand if you can see how that's led directly or indirectly to some of the best things in your life today and that was a pivotal moment for me I raised my hand with practically everybody else in the room there were over 50 people in the room and um and so I, I came to see how even the things I didn't want in my life eventually led to some of the best things in my life. And even though that's happened, and I've worked with that as a, a part of another exercise for a lot of years, I still don't have a position where I say, I'm glad this happened. I can say, I can see how this, in conjunction with the way I chose to interpret and respond to it, has turned into some blessings in my life. And at the same time, that's true. I don't think it had to happen that way in order for me 
to have those blessings, and I don't think I need to have gratitude for that. I'm at the point where I'm satisfied generating gratitude for what I have in my life that I appreciate today. You know, there's a um, a, a, a part of a an interaction that Michael has with people where he, they'll say whatever's coming up for them, they're getting deep stuff triggered, and Michael will say, oh, great, I'm so happy for you. I'm, I still haven't reached that point. Yeah. And um, I, I can't see from where I am in my life that I'll ever be in that position where I'll say, oh, this is great that you're so deeply triggered. It might happen, but I can't see that it would happen at this stage of the game, the way I process things. And that's the kind of thing that I'm hearing in Audrey's position. And I know that can happen, and I'm glad that's happening for you. If I, I, I know I've quoted a number of times one of the talks from Guy Finley where he says, you can't truly love life at the same time that you do not want any aspect of your life. And that's just one of his teachings. I don't know that that's absolutely true. I can see how he would arrive at the logic of that. And I'm certainly not in that place in my life. I'm certainly not in the place where I wide openly, lovingly say, I am so glad for this or that struggle, malady, loss, etc. I'm not there yet. Will I ever get there? I don't know. So I'm satisfied at this stage of my work to just keep using the tools when whatever I'm choosing as an interpretation of life events generates a negative emotional state in me or an ache or a pain or a recurring negative thought. And if I get to the point where someday I can honestly say, as Audrey was just saying, that I'm grateful for all of these things that were traumas and upsets and tragedies and catastrophes in my life, if I get to that point, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. At this point, I'm just very grateful to be able to say that over the past 19-plus years of using these tools, my life has gotten consistently better. And it, it isn't the magic wand. I've had a number of events that people would call tragic. I've had losses. I've had disruptions physically financially, et cetera, a loss of two parents, et cetera. And I've had all of that. And I say to people, I can't even begin to imagine going through that without the use of these tools. I did not go skipping down the primrose path 
through all of those difficulties, and yet I know that I experience them as less devastating and less debilitating because I use the tools. How do I know that? Because I lived a lot of years before learning these tools. I lived, you know, 45 or more years of my life, 45 or 50 years of my life without these tools. And so I know the patterns I would get into. I know how much negative energy and negative emotions I would generate. I know how the the pall of depression would weigh on me and how I would spin in negative thoughts when people that knew me and knew something about, you know, my intelligence and skills and drive would try and cheer me up and tell me how it's all going to be great and I wouldn't be able to see it because I would be mired in the depression or stuck in the loop of negative thoughts. And I've seen the difference in the past 19 or so years of actively applying these tools to those situations to the interpretations in my mind, to the negative emotions, to the recurring negative thoughts, and I wouldn't want to be without them. It is um, it is why the support group that I had been doing for Oh, I don't know how many years, probably nine or ten years before we started the Thursday group, was such a blessing in my life that uh, it motivated me to expand my office and start offering a second night of the week in a support group. Area code 760, is this Ann? Yes, I just wanted to chime in with the others and gratitude and I like what you just did because it's such a great example of all of our differences. You know, that Audrey can be saying this and Selena can be saying that and you can be saying this and we're still this great community of a healing force. So I'm tearing up because I'm so grateful for the examples because that's what you talk about. That's what Michael and Jeannie talk about. Diversity is okay it's what we do with it, you know. So, um, yeah, all the shows this week have just been triggering um, in a good way of the work that I need to do. So, again, just adding to the gratitude. Thanks and blessings. All right. You're very welcome and deserving. Thanks for the call. Blessings to you as well. I will remind us all in our last minute and the first hour that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I will turn on the microphone for and welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. Appreciate it. I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Have a great show. Thanks. So welcome everybody to the second hour of the Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Friday and it's August the 4th, 2023. And our call-in number is 
999-3581 and press 1 and that puts you into queue to talk to us and we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And I see there were several hands that they're still up but they're from uh, talking to Dr. Tim and so we're glad that you're staying with us and reopening the chat room. It acts a little funny. You have to reboot the the whole site to uh, let a second person come back in as host. So just a little bit picky. They have made some changes to Blog Talk. I have not used it yet. It's called Direct Connect. And what it is is while I'm on the switchboard, I actually have the option of clicking and dialing someone in. But then it also, and it pops up with a, like a little dial touchpad keyboard um, on it when you click it. And it says, guests will also have the option to connect to the guest call-in directly from the live episode page. So if you go to, you know, click on the, the microphone on their website and it'll, you know, explain to you how you can go to the Blog Talk site and listen or, or have a chat room. So if you're on the Blog Talk site, you will see it says um, you can connect with your computer, uh, microphone, and speakers. Uh, and you have all you have to do is click on the button that says Connect via Direct Connect. And it's below the episode title. So if you're online and you're on the live show, then you can click that and follow the prompts and you'll actually be able to use your microphone and uh, speakers from your computer. So uh, it still dials in. I'm not sure how all that works. If somebody gives it a shot, then let me know because I'm always on the switchboard as a host. So I haven't tested that to see how it works. And so if you get a chance to do that, then let me know how it works. It may be a clear connection for you. Uh, hopefully the people that are overseas that might even give them an option for connecting. And so let us know. Um, thank you, Michael Teddy, for he lets me know if I've put something out there incorrectly or a link doesn't work, and I really appreciate that. Uh, if anyone finds something on the website that's not working, please let me know. Either drop me a text or, or you know, an email or something. Uh, I accidentally accidentally had put yesterday's notes in for Wednesday instead of yesterday, and that's because we had skipped Wednesday because Michael had appointments and I was with Ari all day. And so I was typing in the wrong day. So I fixed that this morning. Thank you, Teddy. Teddy, I always say his last name incorrectly. My apologies. But thank you, Michael, for letting me know that that was in the wrong spot. So it is now fixed. And I'm going to welcome Michael to the show. And that's Michael Wright. Thank you, dear heart. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome everybody. Delighted that you're here. And we have a request to uh, to start to show up with today, uh, and that is that we got some really rather difficult news today. Our daughter-in-law, Michael J. Many many of you know my son, Michael J. And he married, and they have a new grandbaby. New, she's now, she's going into her 10th month, I guess. Awesome little creature. And 
Michael J.'s wife, Jamie, our daughter-in-love, we met her family for the first time back a year ago when they got married. And her, well, it's a little more than that now. Time flies. In any event, we met uh, her whole family. She's got six brothers and her dad and her mom and grandmother. And anyway, we got a call this morning and her dad, who's really just like one of the nicest men you want to meet, really nice guy, sweet, sweet guy. And uh, he's a woodworker. He's into doing wood projects. And apparently he went out to his shop on his own uh, and was cutting up a log, I guess like a huge five-foot log. I I didn't realize he had a shop this big, but then this log rolled over on him and killed him. So, of course, there's a lot of grief happening for Michael J. and Jamie and their whole family. So if you would, just join us in holding the space and breathing with Jamie especially as she processes the loss of her dad when she was uh, small her mom passed away and uh, so it's a a big blow for her she was in a lot of grief today when we talked to her so just uh, if everybody would just tap into Jamie and her family and extend love in their direction lifting her up lifting her above this pain that she's feeling and into that space of love that she can process and move through everything that this resonates for her. It's definitely a shocker. This is very vital. I'm not sure what his age is. I don't know. Do you know, Jeannie, what age he, he was? Um. I don't know, um, but I know he was probably in the mid seventies or something. Because, like, he raised eight children or seven children, six yep. boys and a girl. Yep. Uh, after the, his wife died, and uh, he has remarried, so Jamie's uh, stepmother is uh, also grieving. So yeah, for all of them. But just a really sweet prince of a man, and. So if you hold the space for that family, we'd appreciate it. And beyond that, we uh, we get to have Aria again today. It was actually not our day today, but uh, some stuff was happening with other grandparents that they had to do. And so we get to play with this awesome girl today, which is pretty sweet. And beyond that... We're excited about having the opportunity to bring these tools on another level, another day, another conversation about this amazing process of healing through first century Aramaic forgiveness and freeing ourselves, freeing each other, supporting the freeing of each of us from this generational world of pain and trauma, sadness and grief and loss, and returning to the experience of the truth of who we are as human beings, as truly as love, recognizing that by and large our awareness of ourselves as human beings and those who 
you know, we'll often use an, uh, an excuse, well, I'm, I'm only human. And, well, actually, when we're locked in those energetic dynamics of hostility or fear, we're actually not functioning as human beings because to function as a human being, love has to be present and active in you. That's the human aspect of our lives. And so to a great degree, the, the world has become void of human life. And our work here is to restore ourselves in every event to awareness of the truth of who we are, to support every other person on the planet, no matter who it is, no matter what the trauma is they've induced, the things they've done, the craziness, the rage, the guilt, the fear, the abuse, you know, whatever it is, behind it all is human life. And to remember that, to join in that, is to shatter the energetic illusions of pain to free ourselves from those energetic patterns and the behaviors that create our pain and reinforce the pain of others. So we're really here to wake up from that dynamic of non-human life and restore, hold the space for human life to be restored for every person on the planet, person that we might describe as the worst or the best. So in a nutshell, that's another description of what we're here for. And we're delighted that you're here to celebrate and share this time with us as we move forward in this understanding. And Ms. Jeannie, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? No, it's all quiet on this end. Well, I think we've got a partial chapter left in your reading from the uh, book by Michael Singer. So we are in the last chapter, and it's called The Loving Eyes of God. When the drop of consciousness that knows itself as an individual drifts back far enough, it becomes like the drop that falls into the ocean. The atman, or soul, falls into the paramatman, the supreme soul. I apologize if I don't pronounce these right. The individual consciousness falls into the universal oneness. And that's it. When that happens, people say interesting things like, I and my father are one. And the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the father that dwelleth in me doth the work. They all spoke like that. They said they had merged and that there was no difference within the universal oneness of God. The drop of consciousness, which is the individual spirit, is like a ray of light emanating from the sun. The individual ray is really no different from the sun. When consciousness stops identifying itself as the ray, it comes to know itself as the sun. Beings have merged into that state. In the mystical Gospel of John, Christ says that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, I in them, and thou in me, and that they may be perfect in one. So it was taught in the Hindu, Vedas, so it was taught in the Jewish Kabbalah, so it was written in the great Sufi mystic poets. And so it was taught in all the great religious traditions of all time. 
Such a state exists. One can merge into the universal absolute. One can merge into God. This is how you know something about God. You become one with him. Ultimately, the only way to know about God is by letting your being merge into the being and then seeing what happens to you. This is universal consciousness and the qualities of the beings who have attained this deep state are similar in every religion. You have something to add there? No, no, I'm good. Oh, okay. (laughs) What happens to one who walks this path toward God? What transformations do they go through along the way? To understand this, imagine what would happen if you started feeling tremendous love for all creatures, for every plant, for every animal, for all the beauties of nature. Imagine if every child seemed like your own and every person you saw looked like a beautiful flower with its own color, its own expression, shape, and sounds. As you went deeper and deeper, you would start noticing a phenomenal thing. You are no longer judging. The process of judging has simply stopped. There is just appreciating and honoring. Where there used to be judging, there is now respecting, loving, and cherishing. To differentiate is... uh Uh-huh. And we're going to make a distinction with this work that we're not suggesting that you love anybody or anything. That's one of the primal errors that has been made, where when you realize that human life is love, that it's not something that you can do, and when you effort doing that, you always fail. When you simply experience life, as he's describing the flower or whatever it is, out of a state of being, then truly the mind isn't involved in that experience. And we experience ourselves as love, and out of that experience we experience others as they are. And so just a, it's a slight distinction that for many people seems like, well, that's silly, you know, why does it matter? It matters because the way the human mind works is that as creators, our minds are an instrument through which we create and the instructions we give the mind will be achieved. And if we instruct the mind to do something that is not true, not accurate, not possible, then the mind will create all kinds of efforts and all kinds of crazy things happen in that situation. So when you structure your mind to support you experiencing yourself as love and experiencing life out of love, rather than instructing your mind to love someone, you've got a whole different experience. And I know it's a subtle refinement, but it's a really major important refinement. Because when you can experience life out of who you are, when you recognize who you are, you know, the first line in the worksheet, you write your name and then you proclaim that you are love. And it is this the discovery and the experience of self as active present love, like the actual presence of love, not the cultures 
mamby-pamby, you know, I'm going to sacrifice myself to prove I love you, not the sexual athletics, this is, you know, love. No, to experience self out of love. And then from that space, space everything else flows. And it makes a major difference. Just a thought. And that's a good one. So to differentiate is to judge. To see, to experience, and to honor is to participate in life instead of standing back and judging it. When you walk through a beautiful botanical garden, you feel open and light. You feel love. You see beauty. You don't judge the shape and placement of every leaf. The leaves are of all sizes and shapes, and they face every which way. That's what makes them beautiful. What if you felt that way about people? What if they didn't all have to dress the same, believe the same, or behave the same? What if they were like flowers? And however they happen to be, seemed beautiful to you. If that happened, you'd get a glimpse of God. That's the best way to know God. Watch what happens to you as you get closer to him. It's really the only way you know anything about God. If you try to read about God in a book, you'll find five other books that say opposite. Better yet, you'll find five interpretations of the same book. Somebody writes something and somebody else gets a PhD proving it wrong. If you move your search for God down to the mental level, somebody will dispute it. It's all part of the mind game. You can't know God that way. It must come from actual experience. That's what happens to you when you meditate. That's what happens when you let go of your lower self. You drift into spirit. And as you drift into spirit, those transformations take place within you. All you have to do is notice them. And you will start to notice the tendency toward the qualities of the divine. The further back you go, the more you will see these natural qualities unfolding inside of you. Each step along the way, you get a clearer glimpse of what it must be like to sit in that divine state. There are those who know of the existence of the divine force. They've had enough direct inner experience to know that divine consciousness is a reality. They have seen glimpses of a force that is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, a force that is aware of all things at all times equally, it is universally conscious. What does creation look like from that divine state? What have they seen? Those who have gone beyond and looked through the eyes of God, they see that there is no judging. Judging faded away a long time ago. There's just more beauty to see. Just a such a being feels, now I can see all the flowers at once. Now I can experience what each of my children and all of my diversity is doing. Now I can feel more love, more compassion, more understanding, more admiration for all of the different expressions and actions of my creation. That is what it looks like to a saint, and a true saint dwells with God. What if it is really true that God is not judging? What if God is loving? We all know that true love doesn't judge. Love sees nothing but beauty in its beloved. There is no impurity. There is no possibility of impurity. 
No matter what it beholds, it's all beautiful. That is how true love sees. That is what it looks like through the eyes of love. So if God is love, what must it look like through those eyes? The eyes that are filled with infinite love and unconditional compassion. Ever really loved anybody, then you know what true love means. It means that you love them more than you love yourself. If you truly love someone, your love sees past their humanness. It embraces their whole being, including past wrongs and current shortcomings. It is like the unconditional love of a mother. A mother devotes every moment of her life to a child who is physically or mentally challenged. She thinks the child is beautiful. She doesn't focus on the shortcomings. In fact, she doesn't even see them as shortcomings. What if that is how God looks upon his creation? Then you've lost out if you've been told otherwise. Instead of being encouraged to feel completely protected, loved, and honored and respected by the divine force, you've been taught that you're being judged. Because you've been taught that, you feel guilt and fear. But guilt and fear do not open your connection to the divine. They only serve to close your heart. The reality is that God's way is love. You can see this for yourself. If for even one moment you can look at someone with the eyes of true love, you'll know those eyes are not yours. Did you have something to add, Michael? Just want to really reinforce this idea because he's using the word love so strongly and the whole world does this and you know for years I taught and did this until the awakening happened until the realization happened that we are the presence of love and just to be aware that as he languages love as a verb, something we're going to do, see them through the eyes of love. No, no, be the presence of love and see them. And now you're experiencing what he's describing. Be the presence of love. And the culture has so deeply, literally brainwashed us with this idea of it's something we're going to do. It's like, you know, if you hold a newborn child and you tap into the essence of that newborn, Everybody describes the essence of the newborn as love. And, and, and when I say, okay, so as you're holding that newborn and you describe that newborn as love, is the newborn loving you or is the newborn love? And everybody goes, of course, the newborn is love. And sadly, we've come into a world, we've come into a culture where the specialty of the world is to knock the love out of us sometimes physically, sometimes mentally, just with thought disorders and improper teaching, not the experience of ourselves as love out of our awareness, and then they give us a set of instructions that says, now go out and find somebody to love you or find somebody to love. And it's a total false journey. Find yourself as love, and seeing through those eyes washes everything. And you become a different influence in your own physiology. You become a different influence in the world when you show up fully aware of yourself as that presence and offering that presence 
everywhere you go to everyone that you see. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be mamby-pamby and lay down and let people walk all over you. You watch somebody committing a crime, and you see that through the eyes of love, and you don't say, oh, I'm going to send that person to hell, but you might say, in integrity, I need to pick up the phone and call the police and become a witness to what that person has done as the presence of love. And so it doesn't mean that people are not held accountable, but they're not held accountable out of brutality and viciousness and trauma. They're held accountable out of conscious, active, present love. If every child, as they were being raised, whenever they were off base, was held accountable out of love, there would be a world, our world wouldn't have depression, our world wouldn't have anxiety, our world wouldn't have terrorism, our world wouldn't have trauma and divorce. All of those things are byproducts of people not experiencing themselves as human beings. So our invitation is, whenever your mind comes up with a structure that's based in hostility or, hostility or fear, whether that structure is about yourself or someone else, that you choose to dissolve that structure in you and you arrive in your own physiology as love. And you arrive, and, and this is an ongoing process, when you consider that, you know, how well-known, how, how many of us have ever heard such an idea, showing up in your life as the presence of love. What a radical idea in our world. And how many generations before us, around us, through us have expressed something other than the presence of love. And so each time someone shows up as love, correction comes, correction comes, correction comes. I understand that there's one indigenous tribe that when a child was born, the people of the community would gather with the child and acknowledge it for who it was acknowledge the truth of that child. And then at any time that the child stepped out of line within the village, the village would gather and speak of who they were as love rather than look at the terrible thing you've done, we're going to put you in prison. How different a game that would be. So the, the world is pretty much consumed in errant language that speaks of us as doing love rather than being love. And so I just want to reinforce that correction. It's really about standing in a space of being who we are as human beings, as love. So. Awesome. And cool. a couple of things that I just happened to think about, especially when we were talking about the eyes and everything. I had worked with right. somebody the other day and I sent them four links, and I'm putting them out in our notes for today. And they're different studies that were done. One of them was done by the Amnesty International. One was done in London. I don't remember where all the others were, but they would have somebody like sit, be sitting at a table on the sidewalk, and they'd have an empty chair on the other side, and they'd have a sign that said something about uh, experiencing love or something. I don't remember. Anyway, it took a while for people to be brave enough to sit down and have eye contact for, I think it was one minute maybe, 
and the changes that happen in people. So here's total different strangers, and in the Amnesty International, it's actually different religions and different cultures, different nations of people that would sit opposite of each other. And they weren't to talk. They were just to look in each other's eyes. And at the end of the minute or whatever, I mean, these strangers would be crying, hugging each other, um, just, you know, the overflow of emotion that just came from someone just looking at them and seeing them and really seeing them and not, you know, the color of their skin or their nationality or the way they were dressed or whatever. And it's it's very powerful. And uh, that goes along with what I had been talking to this person about was doing the love exchange. And so I'm also putting uh, a link to the love exchange. And that's basically what we were doing uh, at the intentions is we would sit and just look with their partner and just send love. And the experience of being able to actually feel the energy that passed between you. And it was amazing. And the, well, I was going to say, and, and to do the love exchange, it's something you can do with yourself in a mirror. It's something that's part of every intensive that we do. And what we'll do is we'll have people pair up in partners. And in turn, each partner will proclaim, I'll be love here in this experience. They'd sit face to face. And the person who was going to be love would just tap into internally the deepest, clearest love that they could find in themselves. Just bringing that forward and then consciously, purposely extend or send that love through their eyes to their partner. So when someone's being the sender in this experience, that's what you do. On the other side of it, the receiver would sit in a receptive state, mind clear, and, and we'd instruct them to just, well, put your hand up between yourself and your partner and just see if you can feel anything coming from their eyes. And, you know, we do that a couple of minutes and then exchange. Um, you know, we have the sender become the receiver and the receiver become the resender. And the experience that people have is just monumental. We had one young girl, I guess she was maybe 13 at the time, I think, or maybe nine, who was in the intensive. I think she was 11. And... Okay, in the middle then. <laughs> anyway, she she created uh, another step in the process, which we've added to it, and that is that as you were doing that exchange, you'd extend your hand out and put your hand on the heart of your partner as you're extending that love to them. And your partner would do the same, put their hand on your heart, and just it just added a whole dimension to it, you know. Try it. Sit with your spouse and just hold that space and just consciously send. In whatever way you can imagine doing it, extending that presence of love. And I know there was one gentleman who, he actually sponsored us when we were in Hawaii back many years ago. And he was a an intellectual businessman, high-level, 
executive in a certain organization, which you'd all recognize if I mentioned it. He was retired, and he shared with us that he had left the mainland to go to Hawaii because he thought the world was just in such shape that it would probably destroy itself soon, and he was just going to go to Hawaii and enjoy himself and just, you know, watch the world blow itself up. We went back and forth. We sat on his deck, and we had hours of conversation about that. And a short time after we were there, after we spent, you know, he kept this, he had us stay in their ohana in Hawaii. They have like a, um, uh, an in-law house oftentimes they call the ohana. And so he invited us to stay. We stayed with him for a week. And so we had many hours of conversation. And it wasn't very long before he moved back to the mainland and he lived in Seattle, and he would share that, you know, there was a lot going on in Seattle that was pretty violent and such. And he shared that uh, what he now enjoyed doing was just sitting on his deck, his front deck on his house. He was on a street that had a fair bit of foot traffic. And he would just sit on the deck and do a love exchange with virtually everybody that went by his house. He went from a cynical, you know, I'm out of here. I'm just going to watch the world destroy itself and enjoy my life as much as I can to where his enjoyment was just sitting on his deck, uh, extending love to the people that passed his house. So it's a whole different game when you realize you are the space, you are the energy of love to live from that rather than live from a mind that has a picture of self based in power person dynamics, a picture of self based in criticism and condemnation, uh, literally living out of a self that if you go back and you hear Yeshua, he says, in order for you to live, you've got to die. This false self collapsing, being healed, and then bringing forward into your physiology, literally into every cell of your structure, fueling your own physiology with love and extending that to all the world. Even the most terrible aspects of the world, quote-unquote, that the mind could perceive. Now, again, that doesn't mean you can't hold it accountable, but it does mean that anything that you do, you can do out of that connected space of active love, and your physiology will thank you for it. Go for it, Jean. Okay, there was one other thing that I thought of that um, just talking about being connected. Ari and I did an a experiment this morning, and it was uh, to close out all of the outside noise and close your eyes and breathe and hear your breath. And uh, that was pretty cool. So we did that together this morning, so just being in the space. Okay, so to continue, we have just a couple of pages left in this. Um, Your eyes could never look with that amount of love. I disagree, they could. Your eyes could never be that unconditional. Your eyes could never, even in a million years, see only beauty and total perfection in in your beloved. Those are the eyes of God looking down through you. When the hand of God reaches out to give through you, there is nothing you wouldn't give. 
you would give your last breath and never even think about it. It wouldn't even cross your mind to hold back. You would give anything and everything for your beloved. When you feel love this deeply, you feel that it is coming from something greater than you. It is transcendental love. It is divine, unconditional, selfless love. The masters spoke of that love. The ones who went beyond said it's the state you attain when you drift into spirit. That is how spirit looks upon its creation. That is what you should be taught. No matter what you do and no matter what you've done, you will always be loved by him. When Christ told the story of the prodigal son to the disciples, he spoke of one son who had gone away and squandered all of his wealth. And yet when he came home for help, his father treated him better than the one who had stayed and worked. Christ explained that this was because the one son had always been home, but the prodigal son had been lost and the father had missed him. There was no judging, only loving. Christ also said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. What did he teach? What did he say? How did he look upon this world? He taught completely selfless, compassionate love. He hung on the cross next to the thieves and robbers. And when a thief asked to be remembered, Christ said that he would share that day with him in heaven. What were his first words upon the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the love of a mother. How, that's how a mother talks about her child. The level of love and compassion is so deep that the child can do no wrong. If a mother can attain, to, if a mother can attain to selfless love, then what about God, the Creator of love? Do you want to know how God looks upon this world? Do you want to know how He feels about different kinds of people? Then look at the sun. Does the sun shine more brightly on a saint than on anyone else? Is the air more available to a saint? Does the rain fall on one neighbor's trees more than another? You can turn your eyes from the sun's light and live in darkness for a hundred years. If you then turn them toward the light, the light is still there. It is there for you just the same as for the person who has enjoyed its brilliance for a hundred years. All of nature is like this. The fruit on the tree willingly gives itself to everyone. Do any of the forces of nature differentiate? Does anything in God's creation other than the human mind actually pass judgment? Nature just gives and gives to whoever will receive. Should you choose not to receive, it doesn't punish you. You punish yourself because you chose to not receive. If you say to the light, I will not look at you, I am going to live in darkness. The light just keeps on shining. If you say to God, I don't believe in you and want nothing to do with you, creation continues to sustain you. Your relationship with God is the same as your relationship with the sun. If you hid from the sun for years and then chose to come out of your darkness, the sun will still be shining as if you had never left. You don't need to apologize. You just pick your head up and look at the sun. It's the same way when you decide to turn toward God. You just do it. If instead you allow guilt and shame to interfere, that's just your ego blocking the divine force. You can't offend the divine one. Its very nature is light, love, compassion, protection, and giving. You can't make it stop loving you. It's just like the sun. You can't make the sun stop shining on you. You can only choose to not look at it. The moment you look, 
you'll see it's there. As you drift back into spirit, you will see that those are the eyes that look out upon this world. That is the heart that shines down upon everything and everyone. Through those eyes, the most wretched of creatures still looks beautiful. That's the part that no one understands. People say that God cries when he looks at the earth. The saint sees that God goes into ecstasy when he looks upon this earth under all conditions and at all times. Ecstasy is the only thing God knows. God's nature is eternal, conscious bliss. No matter what you've done, you're not going to be the one thing that ruins it. The beauty is that you can experience this ecstasy. And when you begin to feel this joy, that's when you'll know God's nature. Then nobody will upset or disappoint you. Nothing will create a problem. It will all appear as part of the beautiful dance of creation unfolding before you. Your natural state will get higher and higher. You'll feel love instead of shame. Instead of being unwilling to lift your eyes to the divine because of what you've said or done, you'll see the divine as a place of unconditional refuge. Contemplate this and let go of the idea of a judgmental God. You have a loving God. In truth, you have love itself for a God, and love cannot do any other than love. Your God is in ecstasy, and there's nothing you can do about it. God is in ecstasy. I wonder what he sees when he looks at you. And that's the end. So what would it look like if you brought this awesome presence of being, this awesome presence of love to everything that you experience? The other day, Susan was sharing with us the works of a uh, a gentleman who's working on understanding and healing the human condition and uh, I had tapped into some of his videos, been listening, and he reminded me of something uh, we haven't talked about in a long time, but of Plato's allegory of the cave and how it's a perfect metaphor for people who live without the presence of love in their physiology. Those who give up their human lives And so Plato's allegory is, you know, imagine we take people into a dark, dark cave and and behind them there's a fire and a light and they're forced to sit and watch what happens on the cave opposite the fire. And so they see the movement of shadows and they see things and that's the world that they inhabit. And they believe that that's life. And if someone were to grab them by the scruff of the neck and force them out of the cave into the sun, they'd be so blinded by the sun, they wouldn't be able to see anything. And that's a perfect allegory for someone who's living in a mind darkened by hostility and fear. It's the mind is the cave. And we're seeing shadows perception, constructs of the mind in place of 
actuality, what the truth is of the presence of love that we are and that we are designed to be with each other. And we make up all kinds of constructs based in generational patterns of hostility and fear and rage and guilt and grief. And you can't force somebody out of that dark cave to come to the door of the cave and look at the light and understand it or comprehend it. And that when people are first exposed to it, there's just no comprehension of what they're looking at because they're so used to seeing these shadows on the wall of the cave. Reflections from the fire, but, but no actual direct experience of the presence of life, of love. And so when people first begin to apply the process of forgiveness, you know, in that analogy, your first worksheet, when you cancel the goal that's driving perception, meaning the, the constructs of your mind, the, the shadows on the wall of the cave, those shadows collapse, even if it's just for the shortest instant. And in that instant, people try to comprehend what they've just experienced. And that's like the person who's been in the cave, literally the cave, their whole lives, and all of a sudden they're drawn out to the bright sunlight. What do they see? What do they experience? Pain in their eyes, trauma, because the eyes have such difficulty adjusting, and there's nothing that is familiar, nothing that is recognizable. And that's why with the worksheet we offer that this is a long-term project. As you begin to collapse the shadow figures presented to you by, the, by and based on the perceptual constructs of your generations, each time you collapse that, you get to taste the light. You get to taste it. You get to taste the presence of love. And most people, you know, if, if you think about someone who, Let's imagine we took them and forced them out and turned their faces to the sun, having been in that cave literally their whole lives. How quickly would they turn about and head back to the cave? How much of a shock, how much pain would be in their eyes? How would their eyes do with adjusting? What are they going to do? They're going to turn right back. And that's what happens when you begin to apply forgiveness to the mind. Those perceptual constructs of the mind begin to collapse and there's nothing recognizable beyond that if one has lived in that world of perceptual constructs their whole lives. You know, remember the, the basic principle in Course in Miracles talks about perception is a skill made up by you to take the place of what the Creator gave you in creation. You'll hear that in Plato's allegory, the shadow figures on the wall are a world that you've agreed to live in and to, that takes the place of the sunlight. And if you turn toward the sun, it will be such a shock that you'll instantly turn the other way. And that's what the mind does, instantly turns the other way. And over a period of time, when you apply the tool of forgiveness that collapses, not the tool that the Greeks taught us about that we're supposed to let somebody else off the hook, but collapsing the pain and the trauma, the constructs of the mind, and stepping into a direct personal experience of yourself as the presence of love, rather than these pictures, these concepts, these ideas in your mind over time. 
it starts to get comfortable. Your eyes adjust. You know, your structure adjusts to, hmm, feels pretty good. Yeah, it was a shock at first, but it feels pretty good to experience yourself as you truly are as the presence of love. And then as you begin to take responsibility, rather than, you know, the next time your spouse says the wrong word and up comes that old pained construct of the mind, instead of pointing it at someone and blaming someone for it, you take a breath and go, oh, here's another piece of my work. Here's another piece of my work. Here's another shadow on my own wall that I'm ready to let go of, that I'm ready to get rid of. And over time, adjusting fully to the presence of the sunlight, begin to see the actuality, the actual world around us, rather than the shadows on the wall of the cave. So thank you, Jeremy, for reminding me of that uh, allegory. And thank you, Plato, for having the understanding to have shared that with us. And so to step out into the light even if it's just for an instant, is a monumental thing to do. To give up the constructs based in hostility, fear, pain, rage, guilt, grief, force, drama, trauma, power, money, sex, whatever the addictions are, the things that are used addictively, and to just stand as the presence of love and Allow yourself to be so present in your own physiology that you begin to dissolve the energetic patterns behind the world of hostility or fear. And allow that full presence of light, of love, to enter every cell in your structure that your structure so softens and opens that you recognize this is your natural state. It's what we're designed for. It's where we're designed to live. So, Ms. Jeannie, any other thoughts for you? Covers it for me. We have nine minutes. Surely that brought up something for somebody. Press one. Let us hear your question. We have nine minutes. And we have a hand up. Great. Let's say hello to our caller. It is Miss Celinda, and I'm glad you put your hand up. I just hey, want to lady. let you know that we got your envelope today. Thank you for the donation. You're so welcome and deserving, and I just hope that it wasn't too late. I have to juggle it with everything else in my little budget, <laughs> but uh, it's a gift of gratitude. It's a specific um, forward of uh, Dr. Tim saying that he wanted me to support you instead of him since I'm on a limited uh, income, you know, like he has a donation for his support groups, right? And I had, I have been uh, uh, following the support groups and being on whenever I can, and so um, that's your donation. Awesome. And thank you, Dr. Tim, and Thank you, Michael Rice. Well, thank you to both of you. Um, Jeannie, I sent you a text the other day, and I'm not sure you ever got it because um, iPhone does funny things for me because I'm not on iCloud, if I cannot possibly not be. And so um, 
then it has to go through the internet and it um, sometimes disappears somewhere in cyberspace. So my question for you was, is it, is it okay for me to share the Aramaic gospel recordings that you had on air um, with my family members and friends that I think are ripe for at least being willing to listen to the Aramaic gospel? 2,000%. If you go to the website, and I'll send you the direct link, but we actually have, uh, like, if you go to the website under Kaboris, there are several things, um, and you'll find the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer, and um, so there's a lot of information that's on there. But then also the um, there is a Beatitudes page that I created separate that just has um, it's got four, five, six uh, uh, audios of uh, when Mark Haddis and, and Michael Rice were both, you know, talking and, and uh, discussing the Beatitudes and, and everything from the Aramaic. And then, of course, the um, radio shows where we have played the Beatitudes, that's out there for the public, so absolutely you can... I'm thinking that. of uh, Alan Dale, Dale Allen Hoffman and Michael. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, the, what, and that one uh, different link you gave us because for some reason Blog Talk Radio cut you off in the middle of that um, that recording of the third of the third program um, or the third hour. But I tried to go back and find them, and I found some. But I remember you sent. Somewhere, I don't know whether it's on one of your notes for one of the shows or what, but you sent those three links. You had it somewhere, plus the corrected link, all in one little neat package. I wondered if uh, I didn't know if it was a newsletter. I looked back in my old newsletters. I couldn't find it. I looked and found some of the shows, but I couldn't find all of them. And I was just wondering if you had that available and if it was okay. Um, I'll have to go back and look. Uh, I can look and see if it was an email that I sent you or what. I don't know. Well, I think it was for everybody, but I don't want you to go to a lot of work, sweetheart. I just want, uh, because I'll just go back and keep digging. I just have several elderly people, including my older brother and, and Spence Perna, who has... Uh, a very good Catholic friend who has uh, diabetes and a bunch of health issues, and my brother does too, and then I want to send it on to a couple of other brothers and anyone that I think would be open, and I was hoping they would be available to do because I thought it would be a good segue into further them looking further if they were interested. Well, anything that we have in our archives or what have you, you're certainly welcome to share with. Well, the only limit would be if they're not on planet Earth. But, you know, if you want to share it with all 7 billion, 7.5 billion people, go for it, young lady. We're, that's, that's what we're here to do. I'll do my best to make a direct link with those who are not on planet Earth. <laughs> That's cute, Michael. <laughs> and um, 
What happened to your daughter-in-law's daddy? I'm uh, Larry was rushing out the door to go do his best at the Steens Rim Run again. Right. Uh, Oregon's toughest 10K up in the mountaintop. Right. He's going to try to he's going to try to beat the runner in his age group um, by that's, power walking. That's awesome. So he's, he's going to awesome. be he's going to be in the run race. We'll see what happens. I just sent him on his way. Yep. Okay, sweetie. Cool. Well, we'll send we'll a blessing him, in his direction. But yeah, uh, Michael J is uh, is my son, and his wife's name is Jamie, and her dad was a woodworker. He worked with with, with wood all his life, and apparently he went out. I guess it was sometime this morning because we just got the call just before the radio show. And he had about a five-foot diameter log that he was cutting, sawing somehow on his power equipment. And apparently it broke loose from its mount and uh, crushed him. Oh, my goodness. So he was killed on the spot. What happened because that was yeah. precisely at that instant I was helping Larry get out the door. So, right. Oh, right. well, you definitely have my holding him up and holding the family Thank up. You. He doesn't need yeah. to be hold, held up now. He'll, he'll, uh, he's just fine with creators. So, um, but uh, the family needs definitely to definitely holding the space. Up. Yeah, yeah. It's a. It and was quite a shock. He, he's in. In our, you know, meeting him, and it's just, you know, a little better than a year ago, we met him for the first time. We're introduced to the family, and uh, just a really sweet presence. Was really connected with Kaylee Joe, our newest granddaughter, and so it's quite a shock to the whole family. And even for little Kaylee Joe. Yeah, yeah. energetically, yeah. Her grandpa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was such a good woodworker. He actually made the rocking crib. Um, I'm not sure if it was for all of the children, and each one of them had a turn in it. But anyway, they, he gave it to uh, Jamie oh. when she found out she was expecting Kaylee Joe, and so Kaylee Joe's got that homemade crib that he made. You know, it's awesome. Yeah. It's really so. Thank you for those old things. Yeah. I'll, I'll, Just I'll thank you for asking and holding the space. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's it's all about connection. It's all about connection. For oh, sure. And, I, and I'll say one thing real quick because I know we're we're down to our timeline. Um, I remember one time I mentioned to you, Michael, and I wanted to share this with you that I said I was connecting the dots, and you said, "Oh, that's figuring it out." And I pondered that for a really long time, and I realized, no, that's not figuring it out. The little boys didn't usually connect the dots. It was a little girl thing. Jeannie, you might remember when you were really little and you got these pictures with all these numbers on it, and you were to go around and you were to go and order every one of those numbers. And when you finished and got back to the beginning, it was There a was picture. a figure. Remember yeah, that? we did that. Mhm. And I we boys did that too. Oh, did you? Oh, wonderful. Oh yeah. Both oh, have, yeah. We both have both lobes of the brain, right? 
and I and I realize that for me, and it's just my definition, connecting the dots is the right brain. It's connection and figuring it out. Just think of it, ciphering it out. What, you're, you're eliminating something when you cipher out. You're eliminating all of the other answers but the one that you want or that you think is the right one. Uh, awesome. Math, whatever. Yeah. So I thought I'd share that with you because I chuckled over it. How absolutely every one of our definitions for our languages are, you know, so bless you both. All right, young lady, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.